Welcome to the Bridge in Theology podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. Bridge in Theology is hosted by Drs. Beth Stovell, Claudia Herrera Montero, Kevin Hill, Ryan Reed, and me, Candace Smith. Today's episode features a conversation with Kat Armas. Kat is a Cuban American writer and podcaster from Miami, Florida. She holds a dual MDiv and MAT from Fuller Theological Seminary and is currently pursuing a THM at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Her first book is Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength, which sits at the intersection of women, the Bible, and Cuban identity. She also explores these topics on her podcast, The Protagonistas, which centers the voices of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color in theological spaces. Our hosts for today are Claudia Herrera Montero, who specializes in practical theology, and Beth Stovell, who specializes in biblical studies. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to it. Leave a rating in your podcast player or consider sharing it with others through social media. And now, on with the conversation. Thanks, Candice, and thank you for listening. I am Claudia Herrera. And I am Beth Stavell. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Kat Armas. Kat, welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, well, uh, before we start with uh, questions uh, about your work, uh, we are so grateful for your uh, for accepting, for saying yes to our invitation. Uh, but also, we're also interested about uh, you telling us something interesting about yourself that most people don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I... Let's see. The best. I, there's a, definitely a few things, but I would say, and of course, that changes you, right? Like different seasons. Like this is like a weird quirk of mine, but something that has been that has remained pretty constant throughout my life is that I'm a huge horror nut. Like I love slashers and like just really grotesque, bloody horror films and shows, and mostly shows. Um, but yeah, or also films here and there. But yeah, I just love some horror. I had a baby in October and I really wanted like my newborn baby to be all dressed like a bloody gory. <laughs> like, <laughs> and everyone was like, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> I was like, that would be so fun. <laughs> like a tiny little, like, uh, not, not, oh, what's the word? Like the walking dead, you know, one of those. <laughs> oh my gosh, Kat, we actually dressed our daughter when she was, I think, two for her first Halloween. We dressed her as baby death and we had oh like a God. tiny little sickle and <laughs> she wore like That's a black perfect. hoodie. So That's I um, I really, really connect to that. I, we actually did that. <laughs> so That's amazing. Okay. I don't feel so bad now. I'm definitely going to do that next year. <laughs> well, I know that you grew up in the outskirts of Miami's Little Havana um, and Claudia and I both lived in Miami actually for many years. Claudia, for longer than me, but I, I still claim Miami is one of my homes with my special mm-hmm. memories. Can you share with us a, a special spot there or a special love there that brings something that brings back memories for you? Yeah. Um, you know, so much, I feel like place and home, you know, really lives within of, within us. And as I talk about in Awalita Faith, you know, the land specifically lives within us. And and I mean, everything about Miami from the second that I get off the plane and like the wet blanket of heat just, you know, smacks me in the face. I'm like, ah, you know, and like listening to, you know, the all of the Cuban uh, Uber drivers yelling out their window, you know, like, you know, and it's just, yeah, it's so great. But I would say um, I grew up on 8th Street. My my grandmother still lives, you know, on, she well, she lives in between Flagler and 8th Street, but uh, my mom still lives like down 8th Street. And um, I mean, just driving down H Street and and the folks, you know, the selling mamoncillos on the side of yeah. the road. There's something about you know the fruit on the side of the road in Miami that to me yes. is just um, yeah. I always have to stop and you know get something and take mm-hmm. it home and just eat it with my family. So I would say just just the just being there. 
Yeah, Calle Ocho, right? That's the yeah. thing that you are addressing to. That reminded me that recently I had to drive close by and I saw the people of the fruit and took me back to my country, Colombia, that you could get fruit everywhere, wherever you go, and you just buy it on your way to college, on your way to right. grandma's home, on the way, mm -hmm. and then not just the supermarket. So those are the little supermercados, yeah. supermarkets uh -huh. that you find. So that's so powerful. Uh, thank you yeah. for sharing. Yeah, so, definitely. yeah, so we're going to uh, jump right away to the first half of, of, of the questions. And so please tell us briefly about uh, your work and what brought you to it. Yeah, so I, um, you know, obviously growing up in Miami, I had such a such a unique connection to my culture. You know, everyone, most people around me were Latino, Latina and, you know, primarily Cuban, obviously, that I interacted with and. Um, you know, I, I was raised Catholic, of course, you know, there's such a strong connection to Catholicism and so many of the Cuban exiles. And, and um, so that was a very strong um, thing for me growing up. And of course, as you're, we, while you're growing up, you're not thinking about it, or you don't notice um, how much of that stuff sort of imprints into your soul. And it wasn't until I left Miami, and I left my little Cuban haven, and I left Um, yeah, just my culture and particularly to pursue uh, theological education in a primarily, you know, white evangelical male dominated space. It wasn't until I got there that I realized, you know, wait a minute, there is something so unique and so powerful and so special, not necessarily or not just or only about my culture, but about the faith that I was brought up in. And I think that that's something, you know, I really truly began to believe because I was told, obviously, that, you know, my grandmother, Abuela's faith wasn't legitimate, or, you know, that um, she needed to be saved because she was Catholic, or, you know, all of these things that I really began to believe, you know, and, and I suffered so many existential crises, uh, those first few years as a Protestant, you know, I, I say that I, I sort of transitioned into Protestantism. Uh, and so that really kind of sparked my interest in women and in, you know, who I am as a Cuban, you know, woman and all of these realities, um, bringing that into just my study of God and my study of theology. Uh, so that's sort of how that began. And then as I continued my journey within seminary and, um, you know, I just fell in love with the Bible and its stories and just how complicated they are, you know, yes. and that's just the, the best thing, like not in a, in a bad way, of course, um, but they're just so complicated and wonderful. And, and I saw so many connections to, you know, my own abuela, my life in so many of the Bible stories. And so that's a little bit of how I got into that. Thank you, Kat, for sharing uh, that part, because uh, I'm really fascinated about uh, your work on abuelita faith. Uh, particularly because my my own research, uh, my own research and pastoral work focuses on first generation college age Latinas and her families in South Florida. But when I was listening to the voices of these first generation young Latinas, the abuelas, the mothers, the grandmothers, they were critical part mm -hmm. of their lives as they build on identity, as they construct identity, and as well as they grow and live out a faith that, as you said, has been invisible to the dominant culture and has been colonized at the same time by the dominant culture. So um, that's when I saw your work. I, 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 I was fascinated, but also very inspired that somebody else recognized in one book the Abuela's Faith. So with this, I would like to ask you, would you, would you please share more about your work on Abuelita Faith and, and, and tell us uh, again, uh, what brought you to it? Yeah. Uh, particularly go deeply into, into the stories, into your abuela, into, into your experience and your lived experience as a, as a, as a woman. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would love to hear more about your work. So I have to interview you one day about that. <laughs> I would love um, to. <laughs> but yeah, so for me, in Awalita Faith, in the first chapter, I write about what I call research grief. And it's just this idea that um, 
you know, as you're doing research and in, in many ways, theological education, because it was, it, it was, you know, began um, primarily just for white males and by white males, right. Um, as like, a, you know, a Western, a white European thing um, in many ways, theological education, the way that I was uh, trained in the beginning, you know, in that context is very much divorced from lived experience, right? It's very heady and very, you know, um, you, you, you do all these things, you think about God and you theologize about God, um, but it very rarely touches lived experience. And I think that that was something, you know, as I'm learning all these things about God, uh, and, and I write about this in Abuelita Faith, it, it really had nothing to do with my lived experience. I was like, well, this has nothing to do with me. This has nothing to do with my reality, nothing to do with Abuela and her faith and the faith that formed me. And that's why I say like, I really, you know, um, began to to have these you know, identity crises and, and really start to question, you know, well, where does God, what role does God play um, in the life of my abuela and so many people in my community who have similar experiences. Um, so when I talk about research grief, you know, I was just re- doing, you know, research on uh, the history of the church as it relates to women and and, but even that, you know, it was, it was European women. And I thought, well, what about Cuban women? Like, what is the history, you know? Um, and that's when I really began to dig deep into just the history of colonization uh, in the Caribbean, right? And that's when I say that it became very personal. I mean, we all know about the history of colonization and we, you know, we know that intellectually, but I felt that generationally in my bones, in my body, because this is the history of, of my people. You know, this I wear these scars in my DNA. You know, I obviously I, I wasn't aware of it at the time. But as I began doing this, you know, what was just a, theo- a research paper became, you know, very personal research grief. Um, and so that's where I just began to wrestle with, well, well, this Jesus, you know, who is this Jesus? This, the, the same Jesus that Abuela knows this, is this the Jesus that saved me? You know, is this the Jesus that she met, you know, on her Island and just began to ask all of these questions. Um, and then with that, you know, I began to really investigate, well, what did Abuela's faith look like? You know, how did she live it out? Because she didn't lead a Bible study, you know, she didn't preach at church, obviously. Um, But her faith was lived out in just literally from the second she woke up in the morning until the second she went to bed. And it it was in her surviving, right? It was in her feeding her family. It was in her sewing, you know, because that's what she, she had to sell in order to make money to pay for the food that was on the, you know, and that's what brought forth all the community and all of the, you know, little other little abuelitas in our home that were constantly in the house. And, um, and it was in her dancing salsa. And that was how she allowed herself to be the fullness of who she was, you know, after working herself to the bone and taking care of her family by herself as a widow, you know, Monday through Sunday. And so I'm, I'm starting to find all these threads of, of, well, wait, God was there. Well, wait a minute. No, that was spiritual, you know, and it was just how she lived her life. And it wasn't, um, divorced or separated from her everyday experiences. I mean, God was in all of that. And I think that that's something that the academy, you know, theological education just couldn't teach me, you know, couldn't even name really at all. Um, and so, yeah, so that's how I began to sort of think through this stuff. And, and, and like you said, Claudia, I mean, that this is the experience of so many, you know, young women. This is the experience of so many um, second generation, even first and third generation uh, Latinas and, and Latinos. And so I thought, you know, this needs to be named, you know, we need to like write this down and um, tell it like it is a, a sacred truth, really. Yeah. You know, something that I appreciate with that is how much you, as somebody, um, as somebody who yourself has a formal education, um, how you see uh, those without formal education, those who are often on the margins, as vital and valuable sources of theology and biblical interpretation. And I'd love for you to talk more about um, about how that emerged for you personally, and especially how it's shaped what theology means to you or what interpreting the Bible means to you. Yeah, it's funny because, um, you know, when, when I talk to folks about this, like I have, you know, several theology degrees and I'm getting another one. And so I'm not against, you know, Western education, of course. Um, but also I'm like arguing that it's like not, you know, the thing that we should be pursuing. So it's like, it's, I think it's a both and, right. And I think that that's most things. I mean, 
you know, if we want to decolonize, as I talk about in my book, um, from Western thinking, we have to be okay with the both and and the non-binary thinking and all of that. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, when, you know, when it comes to the formal informal, um, I always like to think that, you know, if the formal education is the only thing or where we, you know, are to receive all the knowledge, well, then we're really missing out on a lot. Um, because for only a short period of time, and only a, a small group of people have been able to tell us what is knowledge or what is not. And I think that that's sort of the the thing that I wrestle with in Awalita faith is really, you know, what is knowledge and who gets to say, you know, who has it? What is wisdom? You know, who gets to who gets to call the shots? And obviously, you know, we, we know who has. Um, but I, I want to look at the different ways of knowing and being in the world, right? Hmm. Like what, who, how do people um, cross the globe? How have they made meaning of their existence? Um, and to me, you know, and, and if we read in scripture, I mean, that is wisdom, right? Um, just discernment and knowing what to do and doing, you know, the deeply right thing as so many women in the Bible do, you know, they're, they're living out this embodied wisdom that they learn through just again, trying to survive, you know, like trying to make it through the next day. And mm-hmm. it's a very simple, informal, but deeply profound, um, yeah, truth that we find in scripture and in the, the stories of so many of our, of our abuelitas. And so I saw that in, you know, in my grandmother's story of just how the wisdom that she had. And so, and none of it was, was any, you know, anything that she received, you know, she didn't, receive a seminary education. I don't even think she received education past elementary school, you know, but she had like a deep, deep well of wisdom and it was passed down to her from her ancestors, right? Um, An oral sort of wisdom. And that's true for so many of our communities. You know, they, they have this wisdom that comes from surviving and survival and um, yeah, this ancestral wisdom that comes from the body. You know, what's interesting is, um, that, uh, you know, one of the things that I get to do, um, I work in the city with in indigenous communities um, and specifically um, around uh, truth and reconciliation and how do we, how do we uh, change, really, how do we decolonize some of the policies and things like that? But one of the conversations we had is around knowledge and what, who holds knowledge or how do we value right. knowledge? And uh, I remember having a conversation with uh, my co-chair for the work that we do, um, who is Cree Mohawk. And, uh, and I said, who, who for you are the professors? Um, and we were, and she started talking about, about, about elders and the way they hold knowledge and, um, and that, and that knowledge from generation to generation of the land and of the people and how, and how that can be honored as a way of knowing. Um, and so it's been really as somebody, you know, who I am a professor as my job, it's made me think a lot about, you know, how do we think about how we hold knowledge and what it means to have knowledge. And so I really appreciate that, Kat. Yeah. Absolutely. And also it reminds me, what you are just saying reminds me, uh, Martel Otero on her chapter, Abuelita, Abuelita mm-hmm. Theologies, she talks about that always the voices of the wise men, um, um, a female or right. woman in the house are the sobrajas, the leftover for the dominant culture. But on the other side, they are the organic theologians like Ana Maria Isasi Diaz mm-hmm. usually mentioned when she worked with the woman uh, in, in, in out in the streets, in the right. fields, in the margins uh, of, of, of our society. So that what you're just saying reminds me of that and takes yeah. me to, to actually a very important point you know, in Latinx theology, Latino IX theology, we talk about lo cotidiano uh, uh, as, as, as the locus theological, uh, the everyday, la lucha, also the struggle as a theological sources, uh, as a way for us to, to, to know, to do, to be with and among theologians as a point of departure. Our teologías de la casa, del hogar, how Martel Otero says, uh, in your book, you have two chapters that particularly uh, called uh, my attention. One about sobreviviendo, mm-hmm. uh, that reminds me of survival. You know, uh, Maria Isacidias talks about survivals, but survival not necessarily has to do with just recognizing uh, the struggles and the trials and tribulations that are part of life, but actually the call to fully live, to fully 
mm. be calm and be and know in this world. So I'm interested about about uh, your your chapter of resolviendo in la lucha, uh, sorting out things in the struggle. I would say I, that sometimes they don't have translations. Right, right, but, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but would you please tell us more about these two sections uh, of of your book, sobreviviendo o resolviendo en la lucha? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's just so much I. You know, as I was trying to articulate your, you know, just think through this theology, um, this abuelita theology, I think those two things kept coming to mind. A, a theology of survival, um, you know, and a, a theology of resolviendo, right? Like, it's like, as I've been saying over and over again, it's just a, a, a theology of just trying to make it to the next day. And also a theology. And I got this idea of resolviendo um, from a book by um, Cristina Garcia Alfonso. And she talks about resolviendo in Cuba. And she talks about how, you know, it's this idea of, we just got to figure it out, right? Like, we just have to do whatever we, we got to do to figure out what our next meal is going to be or to figure, you know, We don't have the luxury of a five-year plan or we don't have, we just got to, you know, and, and obviously she's talking about Cubans on the island, which is very different than Cubans in, in Miami. Um, but yeah, and I really love that. I felt um, like that spoke to so much of the experiences across the globe, across our communities, and particularly, you know, it, even in a theological sense, this idea of daily bread, right? This idea of, God, I just need what I need for today, not for tomorrow or next week. I just need you to provide today to be my strength today. And I thought that that was so powerful, this idea of, so that, you know, of resolviendo. Um, and I saw that again in, in the life of so many in my community, you know, you just got to do what you got to do to survive. Right. Um, and that together, you know, went along with this idea of, um, Uh, of survival. And you see that in so many women in the Bible. And I think that that to me is what was so powerful is that this has been uh, just the lived experiences of, of so many women across history. Um, and what is so incredible is that God calls that blessed, right? Like so many women throughout history don't need, we don't need to over spiritualize it. You know, it's not this like, no, you know, they were just trying to make sure that their people didn't die. Right. And then, and God was like, Oh, you are blessed, or they are called righteous. I mean, you think of of um, Tamar, you know, and what she does to ensure her survival for the future, you know, with her her father in law, and she is called righteous for that, right? And not only that, but these women are in the lineage of Jesus. I mean, they are, you know, in the direct genealogy of Jesus. When we read in, in the beginning of Matthew, and so, yeah, I I found so much, you know, this this idea of survival, this idea of resolviendo, of just figuring it out, of just living day by day as, you know, that is in and of itself holy. There doesn't, like I said, it doesn't need to be spiritualized. It doesn't need to be, it is a holy and sacred act. And we see that in the Bible and we see that in the lives of so many of our abuelas that their surviving is holy, period, nothing else. Yeah. You know, as an Old Testament scholar, something I really appreciate. Not surprisingly, my favorite chapters are when you spend a lot of time talking about the Bible itself. <laughs> um, I love the chapter called uh, Mujeres of, uh, of Exodus. And you draw this comparison. And actually, I, when I read it, I thought, Kat and I, we've been having a secret conversation no one knows about, because this is what I say to my students when they have their first class in the Old Testament. We talk mm -hmm. about when they when they hit a space that's so complex in, in the Old Testament, um, I encourage them to wrestle with God the way that Jacob wrestled for a blessing. And um, I love that you use the same kind of comparison of wrestling with God the way that Jacob wrestled. And I would love for you to share a little more about what this uh, wrestling process with God has been and with, and with the Bible in your own journey. Yeah, I think that that has been, I mean, the majority of how I can describe my faith and my uh, my study of the Bible, I think, and, and you would understand this, you know, as someone who, who teaches and studies the Bible, but I mean, the more that you wrestle with that text, the, the more complicated it becomes and the more questions that you have and the more, you know, and it's, and I think that that is the beauty of it, right? I mean, that is the beauty of a sacred living, you know, as, as I would say, a sacred living text, obviously everybody has their own ways of, of, of speaking about it. But yeah, as I would 
um, call a sacred living text. And that's something that's something that is alive, right? That it is something that is, you know, just constantly there's an ebb and a flow and there's a change and a, you know, and it changes you as you study it. And so, yeah, that's been so much of my study. I know that, um, Will Gaffney, she talks about, I've, and she mentioned, and I think I, I quoted her in Awalita Faith. Um, she said something like, in I think it was one of her blogs or something, she said something like, you know, you should wrestle with the text until you walk away with a limp. Mm-hmm. And I just love that, you know, because it's this idea of wrestling with the text until it hurts, you know, until it does something in you. And I think that that is a lot of what I, I wanted to do in Awalita Faith. You know, I, I, I'll look at decolonial readings and I'll say, well, look, you know, the, the the destruction of the Canaanites. I mean, we should question that, right? We should question um, what it means to take over a people, to colonize a people. Um, we should wrestle with, you know, what it means that we've been reading a specific passage this way. But what if we were to look at it this way, um, and to offer all these sort of uh, lenses of which to look at the text? Because, um, you know, again, as I mentioned in my book, that the Bible you know, it's not just a book about history, but it makes and changes history. It has changed and made history um, in good ways and in terrible, horrific ways. And so I think that, yeah, we need to be constantly investigating that um, in order for the liberation, right, of us all. Yes. You know, it's interesting. Um, One of the professors I had um, in my doctoral degree, Cindy Westfall used to say, when you Mm. touch the Bible, it should burn you. And that, Mm, you know, it should, it should, and, and if it's not, then it means that you've been too comfortable. And so, you know, can you let it, can you let it burn you in that refining way that's reshaping you to see through new eyes? And so, you know, something you mentioned in terms of coming to liberation, um, you have this wonderful quote in that, in that book, uh, in that chapter. Um, Ironically, while Pharaoh thinks men pose a threat to his power, he overlooks the real threat. God is using women to set the scene for liberation. And and you have this whole exploration of the different women and their roles in liberation, both in the Exodus story and elsewhere in scripture. I would love for you to talk a little more about that picture of the role of women and liberation. Yeah. And so in my research, um, whether it was throughout history, because I talk about, you know, a lot of women throughout history that are um, just fighting for their own and their people's liberation and also uh, women through, uh, throughout scripture, obviously. And I think something that I found, and I think one of the most um, interesting characters for me was Rizba in that sense, because, you know, of course her story, so many people had, have no idea who she is or had no idea, you know, who she, and even me, I mean, after taking several exegetical courses in, you know, in Hebrew and old Testament course and all these things, no one had ever taught on Rizpah. But I think what's so fascinating about Rizpah is not that she, not just that she uh, protested, you know, the unjust murders of her sons for six months, but it was from her protest that God ended the famine that was in Israel. I mean, literally her protest, you know, allowed the people to eat, you know, and I think that that is something that is so overlooked um, how, you know, her, her enacting her own agency, her engaging in protests, like all of these things that that um, leads us toward liberation, all of these things, you know, we find in the story of Rizpa that is untold, you know, that is overlooked, that is just completely, um, yeah. And, and again, so many of the women in the Bible, I feel like that is something that it's in the background, that so many things are happening in the background. And of course, we miss that in scripture because it's a book written by men and for men. I mean, that's just the, the fact of it. But yeah, when you really dig deep, you find, you know, I, I wrote about the, the women in Cuba, you know, how they were sort of in the background of, of, the, of so many movements and they were engaging in protester uh, and protest, you know, phone chains and, and all of these things that, that would go unnoticed because women, you know, quote unquote, don't do those things. Right. Um, so, yeah. And, and of course, we see that in the women of Exodus, you know, um, how they are engaging in civil disobedience. I mean, you see that so much throughout the Bible and I just love it. I mean, Esther, you know, she's leading her people um, in toward liberation. And so, yeah. And I think that Rizba is like just the perfect uh, picture of that besides yeah. obviously the women in Exodus. <laughs> yeah. That actually is so powerful how you mentioned the, the, the importance of claiming on liberation and, and when I think about liberation, I also think about also claiming on memoria historica or historical memory. 
and 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 language is part yeah. of that historical memory or memoria historica. So um, I'm thinking about how you intentionally navigate not only through uh, the title of your book, but also in between uh, in your in your chapters, you navigate in between uh, both languages, English and Spanish. Uh, and, and I see it, uh, not only as a symbol of liberation or claiming on memoria historica, but I would like to actually learn more from you. Would you tell us about the importance of claiming on, uh, of that use of Spanglish, of mm -hmm. that use of navigating between those two and in between those two, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and in, in your work? Yeah. Thank you so much for, for asking me that. Cause that was of course, you know, very intentional. And I even made sure when I spoke to my publisher, I said, I don't want the, the Spanish words italicized. I want them to be, you know, just like every other word. I don't want them to quote unquote, stand out in that way as different, or, you know, I want folks to, as they're reading, to force themselves to sort of read through the word before they get to the English word, um, in, you know, in parentheses. And so, yeah, so that was intentional. Um, I'm actually, it's funny, I'm writing on language right now. And I've just been wrestling with this idea how in, in John chapter one, you know, in the beginning was the word. And in Spanish that says in the beginning was el verbo, it was the verb, you know. And I think that that um, is just, to me, speaks so much about the beauty and mystery of language, but also the beauty and mystery of God, right? Um, how there are words, and, and I think you said this earlier in the beginning, that there are words that are untranslatable, right? Like, resolviendo. It's like, you can't really resolving. Like, I don't know, there's not really a translation for it. Um, but I love that because I think that that speaks to the sacredness of language and how God um, makes God's self known in such particular and unique and different ways in each culture, right? Because if you understand Jesus as a verb, that is very different. I mean, if that's all you've ever heard growing up. Jesus is a verb. Jesus is a verb versus Jesus is a word. I mean, they're both very powerful, but they're completely different. <laughs> like you're understanding Jesus in two totally different ways, you know, obviously according to John. And so I find that just so, so fascinating and so beautiful and so sacred. And so I wanted to, yeah, just continue to affirm that in this book. And, and obviously, you know, Spanglish, both of you lived in Miami. I mean, that is, you know, the language. I mean, there's not, there's not really, Sp I mean, yes, yeah, Spanish and English, but there's Spanglish. Um, and that's just how I was raised speaking, you know, um, even to this day, I just still, you know, kind of go back and forth between languages. And so I think that that is, um, it was important for me to, you know, bring my full self uh, to, to this work. You know, something I love about that is, you know, we have this picture in Revelation uh, as the, you know, so this, this picture of worship of God, where all people are speaking in their own languages. And there is something about that powerful picture that worship comes in the spaces where all of us speak in the language right. that is given to us, right? And that we speak from our, I know uh, Claudia and I've talked before about like our heart language, right? The language mm -hmm. at the core of who we are. Um, and I, I, I love that. So um, I get to have the the fun switch over. We're going to switch to some <laughs> fun questions. Although I always say like the, I think all of these are fun questions <laughs> from, from right. the start, but uh, these are the ones that are, you know, meant to be a little, little fun in a different way. Um, <laughs> so if you could eat any meal every day for the rest of your life, what meal would it be? <laughs> so I, and, and you know, my family hates this, but I'm a vegetarian, so I, I don't eat meat. And literally, it's been 15 years into this day, my family's still like, I but come on, you know, like, it's just a little bit, you know, I'm like, no. <laughs> um, so I will say, um, I just love Indian food. I love like some good paneer cheese and some good, you know, uh, chickpeas. And yeah, so I would say, Probably just a good Indian dish um, or pizza. I love pizza. <laughs> I had pizza at my engagement, my wedding. Like we were just like, let's just do pizza all around. So yeah. <laughs> that is wonderful. You know, I, yeah, I think vegetarian food, in terms of vegetarian food, Indian food is so good for that, but Italian food too. Like they're both so good. So 
<laughs> and what you say about vegetarian reminds me my husband is vegetarian oh, yeah. and and we're gonna go to Colombia hopefully after all these go comes down and I always say yeah. prepárate of what you are going to say when my abuela asks you mijito sit down on the table <laughs> prepárate and you're gonna have to be no more vegetarian for our trip you know because they, no it, there is it no way no sense yeah like abuela still is like ay chica por favor you know like she's like like come on and I'm like you know it just they literally does not compute in their minds no 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 mijita no mijita <laughs> That's my abuela. So we're kind of preparándonos, preparing the way, you know? <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah. I love that question. <laughs> so uh, the second, the second. So what is your favorite movie or film? So I'm not a huge movie person. I know I'm so weird and terrible. I, I just get lost and I get bored, but I love TV shows because they're shorter so I can fit like an hour and I can focus and, you know, and that's it. And then the next night I'll watch another Um, I loved, well, first of all, Jane the Virgin will always forever be like my heart show because I mean, Miami, abuela, mom, you know, it was like literally my childhood. It was very, like, I literally didn't meet my father until I was older. Just like, like it was like so bizarre how much Jane the Virgin and I had in common, did not have a virgin birth, but everything else was very close. <laughs> um, And, and also I, I was a teacher actually before I became a writer and she was, a, you know, a teacher. It was just, it, it was really sweet watching that. Um, and also I just absolutely adored The Walking Dead, um, particularly season two. There is one of the best episodes I've ever, of any show I've ever seen in my entire life. Season two of The Walking Dead, I'll have to say. Those are my two favorite. I'm sorry. I literally could not think of a movie. <laughs> That's like, all good. That's all good. Series are the me, best. <laughs> No, no, you asked that you, you answer your question with a, you gave a good answer. So that's, I mean, that's what yes. we, that's what we want here. Um, so if, if you could take an all expense paid trip somewhere and you didn't have to worry about pandemics or whatever, um, where would you go? So that also will change depending on like how I'm feeling in that time of my life. Um, so right, actually right before, um, COVID started back in 2020, my, my spouse and I had, a we had a trip planned to Asia. We had, we both, neither of us had ever been. And then we kept pushing it back, pushing it back. And then, of course, we had to just completely cancel it. Um, so I would say just in general, I would love to finally visit Asia. Um, I've you know never been. I know Asia is like abroad. We were going to, um, we were, we were going to spend some time in the Philippines. We were going to spend some time, you know, just in different places. Um, but I, right now, I have a newborn. And so I just want to go to a beach and just all you can eat and drink and do absolutely nothing. So right now, I just literally want to do nothing. <laughs> I understand. I remember a newborn. I remember that yeah. stage uh, twice. Me and too. So <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I love it. Uh, if you could have coffee or tea uh, with any historical biblical theology figure, um, uh, who would you choose? Who would that be? So I am going to, well, of course, Ada Maria Sassi Diaz would definitely be one, but writing, yeah, she's just, you know, obviously just, there's so much that I would love to talk to her about. Um, but I, in writing Abuelita Faith, I, I wrote a chapter on dance and, you know, Celia Cruz was just so big for us, for me growing up and such a huge part of, and, and even in writing this book, there was just, I, I remembered how much I adored her. And as a, you know, black Cuban woman, um, you know, who, who her rise to fame was in the midst of such patriarchal and complicated it politically, obviously, um, you know, with the revolution and all during that time. And she's definitely not a biblical <laughs> or a theological, although she could be theological depending, depending on how we, you know, um, what our parameters for that are. But I would say Celia Cruz is one um, besides Isas Diaz. And I can only imagine to be on a, on a table with those, with, with those two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be an amazing conversation. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah. That would be amazing. That would It be really so would. amazing. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. 
So with the second half of our conversation, we're going to switch over to talking a little bit about the church and like your spiritual life and faith. Okay, so let's do that. I'm going to lead this set of questions. So I'm going to start. Uh, how has your research and work enriched uh, your faith and spiritual life and vice versa? Yeah, um, well, definitely, you know, the first thing I can think of is looking for uh, the abuelitas, you know, not just my biological ones, but abuelitas in unexpected places, you know, in, in unexpected people, um, finding, you know, sort of the, the wisdom there, um, but also not just the abuelitas and just looking for the, the sacred or the divine, finding God in unexpected places um, through unexpected people, right? The places that the academy doesn't train us to look uh, for wisdom or uh, yeah, and in unassuming things, right? Like children or nature or, you know, going outside and taking a walk and finding God. Um, I, I've also been writing. So I'm, I'm working on a second book. So if I say I'm writing on this, I'm writing on the book. Um, so I've been writing on um, just sort of nature and, and all that. And um, I ha- I'm writing a chapter on uh, just birds and how I never knew anything interesting about birds. I, I mean, my, my husband loves birds, but I didn't know anything about birds. And, you know, I'm finding that this one bird that has been, you know, quote unquote, really annoying in my, you know, in my home that it's always outside in the springtime, not right now, although they're probably going to come out soon, but it's this bird that just is very obnoxious. Um, but I'm finding out like all of these really incredible and beautiful, amazing things about this bird as I'm doing research on this bird. And I'm like, you know, that is so like such a perfect description, <laughs> you know, of like something that is just annoying and unassuming and like, leave me alone. And there is just so much beauty and wisdom to behold in this creature. And so, yeah, just looking for God in unexpected and unassuming places and people and things and creatures. That's wonderful. You know, um, actually... I started going for walks in this uh, park that's near, really close to my house. And because it's a park that um, is so near us, I go every season, even when it's like super snowy or when mm. it's really hot. Um, and uh, and there's a tree that I've kind of become friends with. Like I've gotten yeah, to see the tree that. go through all the different stages yeah. of its life. And I almost am like rooting for the tree. But also yeah. it, I feel like it, you know, I keep seeing how by seeing it, by understanding it, it, it teaches me things, um, yes. you know, and so um, I wonder, you know, it sounds like you said some of these already. So, um, but, but, you know, some of the spiritual practices, I mean, we've all been through probably, I assume you as well, through some difficult spaces of late. This has not been an easy season, I think. Um, what have been spiritual practices uh, that have kept you going through, through these different spaces? Yeah. Um, I would say that definitely um, trying to get outside and trying to, I, like, I love how you mentioned just befriending that tree and, you know, recognizing something that I, I was reading recently is that um, the same word in the Bible, and I'm sure you you know this um, because you studied Hebrew, but um, that for animals, they use the word nefesh, which is soul. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, which is so bizarre to me how we say that, like, you know, animals don't have souls when it's, you know, a, a similar word is used. So there's an argument you could you can make an argument for that. Um, and that's something a lot of people don't really know. Right. Hmm. And so I, I was thinking about that recently um, because my one of my cats died unexpectedly um, last year and, and it was really hard. And I just like really, really struggled with it. I mean, I could not stop crying for months, you know, months. It was unexpected. And you know, and I was like, but why you feel silly, right? You feel silly crying over, you know, this cat. Um, and you tell people, oh, you know, I know, but, and try to explain why it, it hurts so much. And, and reading about that, you know, that nefesh. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my gosh, no, that there was something in my kitty and there was something in me and our souls connected. And mm-hmm. it's not silly that it hurt that bad. And anyway, I know that this doesn't answer your question, but, um, but I think it just goes back to this idea that, that, there, there's divinity, there's something sacred there. Um, and not just in my cat, but in every encounter that I have and every single thing that I do. Um, I love how in the Bible, you know, you see this, I think Jacob does this. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the you know, quote unquote, uh, forefathers do this, but they'll encounter God and they don't know that they encountered God or, the, you know, it'll kind of just happen. And then they, they kind of think back, oh, wait, God was there. And then they'll build a little altar to like, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like commemorate that moment as sacred or like a moment where God was. 
And I just love that. Um, that actually was a spiritual practice that has been for me um, when I was outside more because it's, it's been cold. But um, that was something that I was doing a lot is just it, when I felt like I encountered the divine, just kind of stopping and pausing and commemorating that space as holy. Mm. And I would even put little rocks, you know, together and like, this was a holy space and this was a holy mm-hmm. moment. And I think that that was something for me um, that helped me just to, to remember like, oh, God was right here. And God was right there. And even on this walk, you know, I was on a walk once and I did that. Like God was right here, you know. I love that, you know, it was something about encountering God in um in these these everyday spaces around us where God can meet us um, and mm-hmm. through physical, like the natural world. Um, um, actually, I've been working on this um, actually co-written paper with a, um, with a biologist. And it's been really interesting because we were talking about naming animals um and mm-hmm. ha- and exactly that nefesh connection between the different living beings that adam is a living being um and his giving name to animal as animals as a name an act of care and and right. love and compassion to the animal to animal life and that connection between the two of them like acknowledging that connection and so there's something really powerful that we often um historically we've often un- downplayed the land and animals um right. and to raise up human beings, but there's such a value to both of those things throughout scripture. And so I love that. I love that. So Absolutely. And also, as you speak about uh, space, I'm thinking about how can we, the power of naming ourselves and right. naming in that, in that space. So you speak at the beginning of, 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 of our conversation about the role of women, right? Uh, our, our embodiment as women, uh, not only in in the public, but also in the church, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how has your work affirmed or strengthened your understanding of the role of women in the church today? A particular example that you would like to share with uh, where you had to claim on leadership and identity as a, as a woman? Yeah. Well, first of all, the church wouldn't be anything, you know, without women. And also the church has missed out a lot and has gone so wrong without, you know, in the way that, because it has suppressed the voice of women. And so it's, it's one of those like weird juxtapositions, right? Like it would be nothing without women, but also it's in a really bad place in many ways because um, not just it's control over women, but yeah, over things like nature and things like um, just people in general, right? Um, Just this, this wanting to, to control and rule over, but um, but anyway, yeah, I, I have, so I always say that I had the advantage of being raised, um, by a single mother and a single grandmother. Um, obviously at that time, you know, that was very hard for me to not have, um, you know, to not have a relationship with my father and those things, but it gave me an advantage in that I, I saw Abuela and mom, you know, be both mom and dad, you know, and they, and they played both of those roles and they raised me to, you know, advocate for myself and to be loud and to, you know, be opinionated and not be afraid of that, um, to, to, you know, go for all the things that I wanted to achieve and all of those things. And so when I arrived in these, you know, church spaces that were not very welcoming, um, to say the least for women, I had the advantage of saying, wait a minute, this is, this isn't, um, this doesn't work out practically. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like what about me who was raised by a single mother and a single grandmother? Um, I never had anyone that I had to quote unquote submit to in the way that the church expected me to. So what does that mean for me? You know, what does that mean? Does that mean that my entire life I was living in sin or I was just, you know, like wrong or whatever. Um, so yeah, so I experienced a lot of that, um, when I first arrived in that context and that was uh, very hard for me, but I think, um, because of my lived experience and because of the strong women, uh, in my life, I was able to just completely like disregard a lot of that, you know? Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it was, it was hard, but I think that that is something that, uh, for me, I've seen in my work and in my research and in, and in the Bible, you know, the people of God are nothing without women. Uh, again, Rispa ended a famine because of her audacity to protest. Right. Um, but at the same time, the church uh, has missed out on a lot 
I think. Uh, and of course, you know, God, we, we can say that God is sovereign and all these things, but I still think that the church, you know, we've gotten a lot wrong um, because of our, the way that we've treated women. You know, something that I, I really appreciate about your work is the way you see specific contexts that flow into theology and faith. And I mean, we've, we've obviously talked a lot about that um, so far. Um, I would really love to hear you talk a little bit about how you think top how do you think context can shape churches today? And, and maybe even the parts of that that give you hope about that picture. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, all theology is contextual, right? All, everything is subjective. All of our theologizing and talking about God uh, stems from our own lived experiences and in our own context. And I think that, you know, it's not a matter of, of, inviting context, but it's a matter of just acknowledging it, right? It's a matter of just acknowledging that everyone has their own lens through which they um, understand God. And man, the church would be um, in such a beautiful place. And I do see hope in, in many places of the church. I mean, even this conversation for me is hopeful. And um, because God is is moving most powerfully in the places where um theology is quote unquote, most contextual, right? Um, that, that is where God is. That's where, you know, I, I see God's movement. And if we would just acknowledge that, you know, and I always say that, um, I, I talk about this in Abuelita Faith, but like a decolonized view of hospitality is, you know, not inviting folks to, to our table, but, you know, recognizing that folks have their own tables, right? Mm-hmm. Like marginalized communities, like pe- women, um, Abuela, Abuela had her own table and we were guests at her table. You know, yes. she set the table, she cooked, yeah. she told us what we're eating that night. You know, we didn't. so I think that, um, you know, it, the church needs to learn how to be a good guest. Um, mm, yes. And I always think, yeah, because, you know, I think the church is is so used to being the one, the hosts and so used to being the one to, to, yeah, set the table. But I think the church should, should just let, and I say church as, you know, dominant culture. Mm-hmm. I think dominant culture, um, just learn how to be a good guest. I mean, Jesus was a good guest. He sat at unfamiliar tables all the time. Um, and I think about, you know, the history of colonization, imagine what colonizers, you know, imagine where our, our, you know, what our history would be or where, where our countries would be if, you know, the colonizers learned how to be, you know, were guests instead of, you know, when they arrived and were, were able to be good guests instead of, um, the opposite. You know, that's actually been a powerful part of the conversation as I work with Indigenous people is learning to be a guest. And um, one of the things that comes up in the conversations is a lot is, can you accept the invitation for to be a guest, right? Um, And that's a real, I think that's just such a powerful overturning. And in some ways that... um, the beauty of of the of the upside down kingdom pictures that we see um, that push us towards pictures of liberation. So right. that's wonderful, Kat. Thank you so much. Yeah, and as you talk about guests, and as well as the table of the grandma, it reminds me. I, I recently I recently wrote an article of Mis Abuelas y la Teología, right? Oh, awesome. And and I speak about the table of my grandma, uh, the table of my abuela. Uh, when I talk about the communal dimension of Lo Cotidiano, there was always a chair. There was always a space on her table and there was always plate where we sit down when we are welcome and where we are all uh, invited to be part of the conversation and claim our voice as well as our, our space in La Mesa de la Abuela. So with mm-hmm. that, we we really thank you for this powerful uh, conversation, uh, for your insights, for your reflections, for your work. Uh, I enjoyed very much uh, the conversation personally in my own work, as a, mm-hmm. in my own lived experiences as a Latina immigrant in this right, country yeah. and, and as well as a scholar and teacher as well. So thank you, Kat, for joining us uh, today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at bridgintheology.com. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe to it in your podcast player, rate it, or share it with others. 
This episode was produced by Kevin Hill.